Let us pray. We do praise you and thank you for the victory that we receive in and through the shed blood and resurrection power of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. As you have spoken to us through song, and as we've worshiped you, we pray that you would continue to speak to us in and through preaching and teaching of your word. We, your servants, are listening. Speak, Lord Jesus, we pray to our hearts. It's in your name we pray, the saving name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated as you're having a seat this morning. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 18 this morning, Genesis chapter 18. This past week, I had the privilege to be in Maine, and uh, many of you know that we have a five-year commitment with five projects. If you do not know this, and maybe you're new to Dawson, it is entitled Go Love Tell. And so there's a local component of that. There's a national component. There are three international components of that. But the national component is that we as a congregation have committed over these last three years, the next two years, to seeing God's word spread and the gospel saturate the state of Maine. I had the privilege, along with one of our mission pastors, Randy Poe, to be able to meet uh, and be able to see what God is doing in church planters' lives and pastors' lives that we have the great privilege to partner alongside of. As your pastor for the last 14 months, this is something I've heard of, but to be able to be there and to see the places where, where many of you have, have served to be able to hear from the planters and, and pastors just how much uh, Dawson has impacted their lives from chapel choir tour to this last summer construction teams and VBS teams and volunteer teams. Uh, this morning, Summit Community Church, which is pastored by Travis Bush, and Travis has been in our services, and we as a congregation have uh, walked with him uh, through amazing things that God is doing in and through that church. They're baptizing five people this morning. And so, Dawson, you are a part of that through your prayers, through your giving, through your going. And praise God that we have an opportunity to partner with, with many men and women whose desire is to see New England, uh, to see uh, Maine uh, saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I come back to you this morning encouraged by our partnership, hearing again and again, thank you, Dawson, for your faithfulness to what God is doing and what God will do in a state that we love called Maine. If you have your copy of God's Word in Genesis chapter 18, what we're talking about this morning is a birth announcement like no other birth announcement. It's going to be a reaction that's a little bit surprising from the mother-to-be named Sarah. I don't know what it was like for you when you found out that you were expecting. Let me talk to the husbands for a second. When when your wife shared with you the the news that you husband would be a dad in the months to come, I don't know if you remember the reaction, if you remember how you heard that. You know, when, when we've we have three children, and really all of our children, it's sort of before the prevalence of social media. You know, now when a wife who is expecting shares with her husband the news that they're going to have a child, I mean, it, there's a production value. I mean, they, there are budgets that go along with this. I mean, they rent marching bands, and five hot air balloons go up in the air. There's a, 
uh, production crew and a camera crew to capture all the reactions. And, and so, I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot that is shared with friends and family members. But I think what goes along most of the time is a absolutely befuddled husband. I mean, just doesn't know what's going on. So there's, a, there's this bag in front of him, and he's pulling out the diaper. He's pulling out the, the, the baby uh, rash stuff. You can tell we haven't had kids in a long time. I don't know what any of these things are. And they're, they're pulling them out, and, and the husband just looks so Uh, puzzled by the whole thing. And finally, he figures it out. And what is his first reaction? Well, it's, it's usually, really? Like, really? Are you sure? I mean, it's usually question marks. Now, it's interesting in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah is going to hear the news. And, and it wasn't question marks, but rather it, it was laughter that she met that news about the baby that was to come. In Genesis chapter 18, we read in verse 1, this birth announcement like no other, and we read God's word, and it says this, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the doors of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick. Three says, have found flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good. He gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him in verse 9, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he says, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. In Genesis chapter 17, we see a significant shift in the story of Abram and Sarai. We can see it in the changing of their names. Abraham, Abram becomes Abraham, which means a father of a great multitude. Sarai becomes Sarah, as told to him by the Lord in Genesis chapter 17. It is a way to signify that he, Abraham, is going to have a son, as he had promised two decades before, through Sarah. So we have not Abram, and we have not Sarai, but we have Abraham and Sarah away in Genesis 17 to say, I am all in with these two. I am giving them a new start, a new way with this name change. There's a physical sign of God's covenant with his people that is instituted 
in Genesis chapter 17, which is circumcision. Is it an outward physical sign of the relationship and the covenant that God has made with this people? Abraham receives this news. He receives this command to go and to circumcise his household, all of the servants. And he circumcised first the 13-year-old Ishmael, and he circumcises all of the household servants. Now, when Abraham receives this news that Sarah, Sarai will no longer be Sarai, but will be Sarah, and that will signify that she will have a child, his first reaction is a very familiar reaction to what we read in Genesis chapter 18. He laughs to himself. So it's not just that Sarah is surprised about this news. It is Abraham also who is surprised by this news. There are three questions that I want us to answer from Genesis chapter 18. The final question is a question not only do we answer from Genesis chapter 18, but it is a question that we answer with our lives also. The first question that we discover in this passage here is the question of who are these three honored guests? The identity of these guests. Because there seems to be a a divinity that is implicit in the identity of these three guests here. Notice in verse 1, in your copy of God's Word, in Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. So we have it stated at the very outset here that these three men are not just any three men, but that one of them at least is the Lord, the Father himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth that is before Abraham. Abraham bows in their presence as, as a sign of reverence to them. Verse 3, he says, as a greeting, O Lord, which in the language of the Hebrew is Adonai, which would, can be translated master, but ultimately in this context, it, it is one that is translated O Lord. In verse 10, the Lord said. In verse 13, the Lord said. In verse 22, we have again the identity here of the Lord being present and speaking to Abraham. This is interesting. Two chapters ago in Genesis chapter 16, Hagar, along with her son Ishmael, are greeted by the Lord in the presence of of an angel, in, in the incarnation of an angel. There's the Lord there that has taken upon himself that that physical being. And so it seems that we have at least a theophany, which is what scholars call it, when when God takes upon himself a, a sense of angelic flesh or a sense of human flesh and appears before his people. Now, there's an interesting wrinkle to this passage. Uh, There's a mystery to this passage. Uh, We can say without any doubt, without any hesitation, that the Lord, the Father, the Creator is present as one of these three that is here. But it is interesting the pronouns that we read in this passage. Notice when the Lord speaks, there is a plurality that speaks. In verse 5, the pronoun is they said. In verse 9, the pronoun is they said. This little wrinkle in this passage has made some scholars and preachers and students of God's Word throughout uh, thousands of years, especially the last 2,000 years, as Christian witnesses looking back upon this Old Testament passage have thought to themselves, well, maybe it's not just the Lord and two angels taking upon themselves human flesh, but maybe that these three men could be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look with me, this 15th century icon, this painting here. 
It's really the height of Russian art by Andrei Rublev, who in the 15th century painted this. And one of the ways that he signifies in this work called the hospitality of Abraham, that maybe the identity of these three could be the Trinity in flesh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see it by the halos that are behind them, the light that is shining upon their heads. You see the way that they're positioned here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these three guests. Now, I will say that this side of heaven, we don't know with crystal clarity. If this is God the Father and two angelic messengers that appear as men and the three are that, or if there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that have taken on flesh, we, we, we don't know, but this we do know. That there are two decades of doubt if Sarah will actually have a child. There are two decades of of wondering, is it my fault? There are two decades of of thinking as a wife and and then a mother-to-be, what have I done wrong? So when God the Father says, I'm coming back in a year and Sarah's going to have a child, he doesn't say it in a vision, he doesn't say it in a dream, He doesn't say it audibly without his presence with them, but he comes down. He stoops. He condescends. He takes upon human flesh to deliver this message in person. What is the identity of the three guests? The second question that we need to ask and answer is why the gift of hospitality? It's interesting in Genesis 18 that we get more insight than anything else in this section of Scripture, about the menu, about the food options, about the preparation. In these 15 verses here, there's much to say. Abraham goes out to them. What does he do? He washes their feet. An ancient Near Eastern custom to show hospitality. What does Abraham do? He goes to his wife Sarah, and he says, gets three sayas of flour. Now, that just seems so remote. What kind of measurement term is that? That is 36 pounds of flour that she is going to prepare. This is a meal fit for an army. That is a lot of cornbread and a lot of biscuits that you can make on a Saturday morning right there. That is a lot of food. He says, not only that, not only with the flour, but ultimately go back. I don't even know. You make cornbread with flour, don't you? No, I thought I messed up with that. I really did, Judy. I thought I did when I said it. Biscuits in the last two services, I got it right both times. I just wanted to throw in cornbread, and I should have known better. I should have known better. So that's a lot of biscuits to make right there. And I make cornbread with flour, too. So there you go. So 36 pounds of flour. And then you have in this passage here this interesting insight that he goes and kills this calf and the best calf, not just any calf. So there is this wonderful meal that is being prepared right here, and it's more than an admonition. That when you have honored guests, bring out the fine china and bring out the silver and the best. That's not the point of this passage here. Rather, there is a sense in this passage that all throughout Scripture, God reveals himself in an intimate way through meals. That this is one of the first passages of Scripture that, that meals 
become a central point of God working with his people in a new way. So we have Genesis chapter 18. If you go to the book of Exodus and the 24th 24th chapter, you know what you discover in Exodus chapter 24? You have the Ten Commandments being inaugurated with the Israelites. And you know how he does that through a meal. If you go to Leviticus and you see the peace offering, you know how that's inaugurated? It's through a meal. You fast forward to the New Testament, and there you have Jesus. And you know what happens with Jesus before he goes to this trumped-up trial, before he loses his life on a cruel, coarse Roman cross? What does he do with his disciples? He takes them to the upper room to have, what, a meal, the Passover meal. And that Passover meal is a previewing of the meal that unites us as Christians as what he did in that upper room becomes a a way that we come around with uh, bread and with the cup, his body and his blood. And we take the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. We're, We're gathered together as a church and what unifies us is a meal which really is an appetizer because not only do we look back in that meal to celebrate what he has done, but we look ahead in that meal understanding that we are headed to a heavenly meal that one day we're going to be gathered around again. What a table for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Genesis chapter 18 is just an appetizer of the way that God uses a table and uses meals to bring about his work and his way. And you know, there there is a sense, there is a sense that when you walk through the Gospels, you see the way that oftentimes Jesus' ministry is around homes, around food, around the intimacy that occurs when you share a meal together. His first miracle at Cana is is at what? A wedding reception. We have him uh, getting Zacchaeus to come down to what? Go back to his house. We have a a woman of the town that comes in where he's reclining there with the Pharisees and and one of, of the most prominent ones home. And she wets feet, anoints them, weeps over them. And there is a way that something occurs when you eat together. We live in such a polarized world, and it seems that we're just fragmenting around so many things that, that seek to divide us, and it, it just seems in our world that that division grows increasingly large, and one of the things that unifies us, and one of the ways that we break down those perceived barriers is that fellowship and that hospitality that oftentimes can happen in a meal. This last Tuesday, I was listening to a church planner whose whole strategy is he has connections to Birmingham, and he moved to Maine. And one of the things that he did as far as his ministry strategy, which seems so simplistic, but God is rewarding and blessing in so many ways, is just using his home as a platform of evangelism and hospitality. So I say, well, how do you do that? Well, we meet our neighbors. And not only do we meet our neighbors, but we're on the soccer field and we're on the flag football field and and we meet our children's friends, parents, and and we invite invite them into our life. We invite them into our home. And And he told me the story of two Marines a husband and a wife who faithfully served our country, but both of them did not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And over the course of friendship, 
A friendship that didn't start in the church that they planted, but a friendship that started in their home. God began to break down barriers. And that just a few weeks ago, he baptized this couple. And they, they belonged in friendship before they ever believed in the lordship of Christ. They were his friends. There's a wonderful book that I want you to read. I really think it's a helpful book. And the book is written by Rosaria Butterfield. And it is a book that is so convicting in my life. And the book is just simply this. The gospel comes with a house key. The gospel comes with a house key. And in the book, she talks about how God has has challenged her to, to this gift of hospitality and how God has broken down barriers and has broken down opportunities that never would have come through the gift of hospitality. So my question to you this morning is, maybe who do you need to invite over to your home? Not the person in your life group. Oh, that's good. But, but I'm saying, who, who is the person that has just moved in down the street? Or, or who is the person that, that you're getting to know on the ball field? Or, or who is the coworker that maybe that's the next step? Not, not to proselytize and to beat them over the head with the Bible, but to just to enter in, into authentic relationship, to be able to see how much you have in common and how much you enjoy in that moment. The gospel comes with a house key. There are two questions that we've asked of Genesis 18. Who are these three guests? What do we see with the gift of hospitality? And the final question is a question that we first see in the very words of Genesis chapter 18. And it's a question I want to leave you with this morning. And it's simply this. Do we really believe that nothing is impossible for God? Let me just ask that again. Do we really believe that nothing is impossible for God? The Lord says, I'll be back in a year. And Sarah will have a child. And then in verse 11, we see that Sarah says, the the way of the woman has ceased to be with me. Now, what does that mean? Well, it is Sarah's way of of saying, I've long ago boxed up my maternity clothes, and they're collecting dust in the attic. There is not in Abraham and Sarah's itinerary in, in, in nine months, a plan to drive to St. Vincent's where babies come from. That is not in their long term planning. It's just not. And so this passage here, we're not surprised that when the Lord says this, Sarah laughs to herself. And God's response is, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And it is a question that the text asks of us. You see, for Sarah, her past infertility makes this promise in her mind an impossibility. Her past infertility makes this promise an impossibility. But from God's perspective, the God who, with his voice, created everything out of nothing, the the God who formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, the God with a brushstroke of his hands, he fashioned the stars in their place, and he put the planets in their orbit. Is there anything too hard for that God? And when we're reading this passage, it is very difficult for us to not not hear echoes of the New Testament in Genesis chapter 18. Because there's going to be another unlikely mother. Not a senior adult mother who has nine decades behind her, but but rather one on the opposite spectrum of the life experience. She's unwed. She's a peasant girl 
who is a teenager, who is a virgin, and her name is Mary. An angel of the Lord is going to come to Mary and say, I know that you are a virgin, I know that you're unwed, but in a moment, in, 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 in months to come, there will be a child that you will bear and you will name him Jesus. And she says, oh, well, a question that anybody should ask, how is that biologically even possible? Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and notice what the angel of the Lord says to Mary. It, it echoes in Genesis chapter 18, the uh, Holy Spirit Speaks to the angel, for nothing is impossible with God. And here's the theme. Mary couldn't comprehend, just like Sarah couldn't comprehend. But to Sarah and to Mary, the words of this text, they ring true. Is there anything impossible with our God? And so to to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ... There is a sense that we we must believe these foundational truths, that nothing is impossible with our God. It is true of the virgin birth, and it is true of the resurrection of Jesus. Our faith rests on what is impossible by human standards. Death for all of us in in our world, it is, is the last stanza to be sung. It is the last chapter to be written, but God intervenes in his son, Jesus Christ, and on the third day, he raises him from the dead, and so even death doesn't get the last word in Jesus's life. And for the Christian, for you and for me, for the one who is a follower of Christ, God has done the impossible in your life. Because the Bible says that without Christ, you are dead in your sins. I am dead in my sins, but Christ has died for us. He has taken our guilt upon himself. And when we place our faith in the finished work of the gospel, he does what is impossible for us to do. And that is he rescues us from sin and Satan and even the grave. And so all of us in this room will face the toll of death, and the bell will toll for all of us in this room. But if you have placed your faith in the finished work of the gospel, the impossible becomes possible, and death is not the final chapter. And death is not the last stanza. But, but in the words of C.S. Lewis in the last battle, death becomes the beginning of chapter 1 of the greatest story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the chapter that has come before. How? Why? Because nothing is impossible with our Lord. And that is not just true. It's not just true in some great by and by, in the heavenly future before us. But, but Jesus promises you, he promises me abundant life now. And there's a sense in which there's some of you that are in, are, have come in and entered into the sanctuary discouraged by the barrenness that seems to be a barrier to God's abundant living in your life today. That there's some of you that have walked into the sanctuary and there, there's a lot of impossibility that seems to be in your life this morning. And we need to hold on to this truth. The Lord is saying to us, is there anything too hard for the Lord? There's some of you in this room that have walked in with just persistent sin. Sin that just defines you. 
and you've confessed it to the Lord, but you run to it the next morning, and and you've given up the hope that there would ever be a, a time in your life where you don't go back to this and this has defined you. And I ask you the question from this text, is there anything too hard for the Lord? There's some of you in this room today, if you're going to be honest, there's an emptiness to marriage. Bitterness has has choked out the joy of your marital vows. And maybe it's years or maybe it's decades, and you're just holding on. You've read the books, you've gone to the conference, you've had the counselor, but you say to yourself, this is just how it is, and if anything, it's just probably going to get worse. And I'm here to ask you the question that the Lord asked Sarah and he asked of you, is there anything too hard for the Lord? If he could raise his son on the third day from death, do you not think that he can resurrect the joy of the Lord in your marriage? There's some of you in this room this morning and there's a family member that has been running from the faith and has been running from the faith into a foreign land and is dwelling very happily in that foreign land. And just a few weeks ago, I asked you to write down your lot and you wrote down her name. You wrote down his name. But if you were to be honest, you say to yourself, you know, I've, I've, I've tried this before. I've prayed faithfully for her. I've reached out to him, but to no avail can't imagine anything ever changing. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Maybe you're here this morning, if you're going to be honest, that that you've taken some wrong turns in your life. Maybe recently or maybe decades ago, and and you think to yourself, I just don't see an on-ramp back onto God's path for my life. I've just gone off to the detours. And you think to yourself, Your past is so unforgettable for you, so it must feel and must be unforgivable to God. And I'm here to ask you, is there anything too hard for the Lord to place your faith in Jesus? To be a follower of Christ is a hope-filled proposition even when you feel hopeless. If despair is crouching at your front door, if doubt is hounding you from the left and the right, if you feel as if you just want to throw in the towel, or if you feel complacent in your faith, I am here to remind you, nothing is impossible with our God. Have hope this morning. Be not afraid this morning. Because he has done for you, follower of Christ, what you cannot do. He has done the impossible in and through your salvation. Have hope this morning because your tomorrows are secure. Because why? Nothing is impossible with our God. Do you you believe that today? How you answer that question, not only today, the tomorrows to come makes all the difference. There is nothing that is too hard for our God. Let us pray. Gracious God, 
speak to our hearts. For we're listening. Speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you speak to the person today whose past seems to define their every moment. May they hear today that nothing is too hard for the Lord, that they can be forgiven and there can be a new chapter written. I pray for the marriage that is on the rocks today, or the marriage that isn't just the complacency of the decades of life, that it's just creeping and there just seems to be a sense of hopelessness and a lull. Today, that husband today, that wife would, would hear anew there, there is nothing that's too hard for the Lord. I pray for the person that is just pestered by sin, seems overcome by the sin that so easily entangles them, that today that they would hear there, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Lord, so often we box you in and you are way too small in our minds. Lord, thank you that you are a God. You are a God who could take a barren womb and give life to it. And you're a God who could take a barren soul, dead and lost in sin, and breathe life and implant the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us that follow you. Because for you, there is nothing that is too hard. We are grateful. Amen.